practice here. You know, at Christmas time, you can learn a lot about somebody. Uh, at Christmas time, there tends to be different groups of people. Uh, some people, so, so for example, in this room this morning, some of you are in this camp. You, you've finished your shopping. You've been done with your shopping for weeks. In fact, your shopping is wrapped. It's ready to go. And others of you will be at the mall on Christmas Eve, right? How many of you are willing to admit you still got some shopping to do, still got a little, little work to do? Uh, and when it comes to our gifts, there are two different types of people when it comes to wrapping gifts. Have you noticed? There are people who are very meticulous and perfectionist when it comes to wrapping their gifts. Every little fold has to be perfect. And then there's people like me who just like, as long as you can't see what it is, it's wrapped, right? As long as you can't tell what it is. Thank God for bags and tissue papers. That's, that's the real, that, that makes people who can't wrap look like they are, they actually did something, then something nice. Uh, there's a couple other camps at Christmas time. There's the eggnog camp and there's the I hate eggnog camp. How many of the people in this room would say, I, I'm an eggnog fan. I like eggnog. So it's, it's actually pretty even. And the rest of you, it's too what? It's too thick. It's too eggy. It's too noggy. It's too, it's too something. Then there's people who will binge watch every Christmas movie there is in the next a week, especially the sappy Hallmark Christmas movies. And then there's some of you who think Die Hard is the best Christmas movie ever, and you're not going to watch Rudolph or Frosty. And then there are those who spend a lot of energy, time, and resources, and even risk their lives to make their house look like a Christmas miracle. Lights everywhere, and then there's people who like me who are like, we have two lights out front, and those are those are adequate. Those are adequate for us. Everybody is like one of these two houses. You got people who are really into it, and then you got people who are smart enough just to say, uh, "Ditto." I'll just be like him. <laughs> I do like the lights of Christmas. I love. The, I was in New York City last week. I love the way Christmas looks in New York City. I, I love driving around. I love the lights of Christmas. I just don't like doing the work. I just don't, I just don't like risking my life and, and going up when it's snowy and icy and, and hanging lights out there. But I do like, I, I, I like it. I'm just not fully committed. I'm not committed to make my house visible from outer space. So I'm just, you know, a couple of lights here and there. This morning I want to talk to you about the light of Christmas. And we're starting a new series called Down to Earth. And we're going to have three messages this Sunday, next Sunday, Christmas Sunday, and then Christmas Eve, all from the same passage, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, down to earth. Isaiah is a prophet, and he lived about 700 years before Jesus was born. And he did ministry really in a difficult time of the history of Israel. And uh, we're going to look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 9. On your handouts, you have all seven verses but for this morning, we're just going to focus on the first two verses. And next week, we'll look at the next three. And then Christmas Eve, we'll look at the last two. But let's read this, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah says, he's prophesying about a future event. He says, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. He's speaking of Israel. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time... He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwell in a, deep, a land of deep darkness, on them light has shown. Let me read that last verse again. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shown. 
This morning, from just those two verses, we're going to learn three things about the light of Christmas. We're going to learn about the need for the light. We're going to learn about the nature of the light. And then we're going to learn the name of the light. So the need for, the nature of, and the name of. Let's start with the need for the light. In this passage, uh, uh, Isaiah references two specific areas, Zebulun and Naphtali. And what's happening right, ha- right now in history, in, in, the, in the life of Israel, Israel has divided into two really two different nations. You have the ten tribes of the north, Israel. You have the two tribes of the south, Judah. And Assyria, this wicked heathen nation, has invaded Israel and is dragging them off. They've, they've invaded them, they've conquered them, and they're dragging them into exile. And Isaiah mentions Zebulun and Naphtali for a very specific reason. These were the first two lands that were invaded. Out of all the tribes, out of all the area of the northern tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali were the first ones that were invaded by Assyria, conquered by Assyria, and dragged off into slavery by Assyria. And Isaiah is reminding the people of the desperate times within which they find themselves. These are bad times. And before he gives them any good news, he gives them worse news. Because he said there are people who walk in darkness, but then he says there are people who dwell in the land of darkness. So you don't, they're not just walking through it, they're actually living in it. And what Isaiah is saying here is it's going to get worse before it gets better. There is a progression here. Yes, you feel like you might be walking in darkness, but actually you're living in darkness. And in the Bible, whenever you see darkness used as a metaphor, darkness means really one of two things. It means evil or ignorance. Evil, sinfulness, wrongness, rebellion against God, or ignorance. And the Bible is uh, very, very honest about the wickedness in the human heart, that our hearts are wicked and that we can't know our own hearts. And this is the darkness that Isaiah is talking about. But it's, it's not just the evil in our hearts. It's not just the darkness in our hearts. It's not just the wickedness or the lostness in our hearts. It's actually worse than that. It's our inability to see the darkness in our hearts. It's our inability to see. Think for a minute about who you were 10 years ago. You do the math? pretty easy. I picked an easy number for you. Ten years ago, how old were you? Think about what you believed. Think about what you valued. Think about what you thought was most important. Think about what you thought was true. Think about how you felt about different issues. Chances are, if you're like me, you look back at yourself ten years ago, and there's a few things you're just a little bit embarrassed about. A little bit like, I don't feel that way anymore. Why did I think that? You might even look at yourself 10 years ago and think, I was a little bit of a fool on a few things 10 years ago. Thankfully, you're not that person anymore, but here's what it means. 10 years from now, that version of you is going to look at the you sitting here this morning and go, why did I think that? Why did I believe that? Why did I prioritize that? Why did that matter so much to me? And what that means is, is that that future version of ourselves is going to look back. So that means that this morning, there are some things about ourselves that we can't see properly. You can't see yourself properly or perfectly. And that's the darkness that Isaiah is talking about here. There's a darkness that's evil, but there's also a darkness that is just a, it's not just lostness, it's a lack of awareness of just how lost we are. And I'm all for self-improvement. I'm all for self-awareness and mindfulness and emotional intelligence. I train leaders on those topics. I think those things matter and they're important, but there's a limit to them. And the Bible's teaching us here, no matter how hard you work at understanding yourself, seeing yourself, and knowing yourself, there's still a darkness, an inability to fully see. 
And in this passage, this darkness that Israel is experiencing, it's, it's a darkness that on one hand has been brought upon them by the sovereign hand of God, but on the other hand, it's a darkness that they have brought upon themselves through their living and through their choosing. In fact, in the passage, in the chapter before, in Isaiah chapter 8, we're not going to read it, they talk about how Israel, it was in, instead of inquiring of the, the king of heaven and earth, they're inquiring of the dead. They're going to the necromancers, and they're going to the sorcerers, and they're, and they're going to them and hoping that they will speak to them and that they will help them. And, and, and in fact, the Israelites are speaking against God and against their king. And they're looking to the earth. It says in chapter 8, verse 22, they're looking to the earth for their answers, which means instead of looking up, they look up and they speak angrily at God, and then they look down and they're looking for all their hope, and they're looking for all their truth and peace and meaning, and really they're looking for light. And it says in Isaiah 8:22, they look to the earth, but behold, it's distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they get thrust back into thick darkness. Well, what do we learn here? Darkness is the result of looking to something other than God to do for you what only God can do. Darkness is the result of, instead of looking up to God, say, God, you are my hope, you are my peace, you are my strength, to look around and to make other things whether it's our careers, our accomplishments, our achievements. It could be another person. It could be a, a relationship. It could be the idea of a relationship. It could, it could be a child. It could be a parent. It could be anything that we look to and we say, you're going to give me light. You're the light that I need. And what we find ultimately is that only God is that light. And when we look to other things to be the light, by comparison, it's darkness. It's more darkness. And, and, and Isaiah says here that they were inquiring of the dead in, verse, in chapter 8, on the behalf of the living. And this is the nature of trusting in the long, wrong things. We look to things that have no life in them to give us life. When we have the creator of all life who wants to give us that life. Also, darkness has the power to make you call into question things that you already know to be true. And that's what was happening here. Because of the darkness, they were calling into question the nature of God and the character of God and the word of God, which is, which is really the enemy's plan. It's his strategy against you. You know, if you've read Genesis chapter 3, you saw what the serpent said to Eve. Did God really say? And the serpent wasn't just calling into question the word of God. He was calling into question the nature of God. Not just did God really say, but is God really good? And how many of you, if you're honest, you've ever struggled with that question? Can I really trust God? Don't I need to hold on to things a little bit myself? Yes, I trust God, but don't I need to be a little bit in control of my security and my significance and my value and my worth? Is he really good? This is where the battle for the human heart lies. Can we really trust God? And darkness has a way of making us see things that, we, you, know, you know this, when you were a kid and you'd go to bed at night, you'd flip the light off, and all of a sudden everything in your room that you knew was normal and fine looked dangerous, looked scary. You're like, I know that's just, I know that's a lamp, but it kind of looks like Randall from Monsters, Inc. right now, right? I know that's a laundry, uh, just a laundry hamper, but it looks like a couple mass murderers over there, like huddled in the corner. Because the darkness has the ability to make you question the things that you know to be true in the light. And this is what Isaiah is warning the people of Israel about, and us today. In the darkness, you don't see things the way you should, and you begin to question. So the power of darkness over us is its, in a, is its, its ability to keep us from the light, but also its ability to keep us unaware of how far we are from the light. We need the light. And this is my first point this morning, the need for the light. Why do you and I need the light? Really for three reasons. We need the light in order to see ourselves. Apart from God's word, 
apart from God's work in our lives, we can't see ourselves. That's why King David prayed the prayer, and he said, Holy Spirit, would you examine my heart? Search me. I can't even search myself. Holy Spirit, would you search me and show me if there's any darkness in me? That's how much we need God's light to show us ourselves. We cannot see ourselves properly apart from the light that we find in the Christmas story, the light of Christ. So we can't see ourselves. We can't see this world properly without the light of Christ, and we certainly can't see him without the light. We need the light. Second thing we learn in this text is not just the need for the light, but the nature of the light. There's three things that we learn about the nature of the light. And the first thing is this. The light is for sure. It's for certain. It's a sure bet. It's the real thing. In verse 1, can you put verse 1 back up there? In verse 1, it said this, but there will be, he's speaking, remember, Isaiah is speaking of a future event. So look at what he does with the verb tenses. In verse 1, but there will be, future tense, future tense, there will be no gloom for her who was, past tense, in anguish. Now what Isaiah does here is he creates this juxtaposition, this comparison between the former times before the light and the latter times after the light. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And what he's saying here is in the former times, God allowed the Assyrians to invade and to conquer and to drag into exile his own people. That was the former times. But in the latter time, after the light, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And I want you to notice something. Uh, it should, to me, it should read this way. But in the latter time, he will make glorious, right? Because he's talking about something future. Why is the verb tense, he has made glorious? And this is important for us to understand because in the Old Testament, there are times where prophets are prophesying about the future, but they do it in the past tense. And the reason they do it is simply this. That's how confident they are in God. That's all it means. They're so confident in that what God is going to do that they're speaking it as if he has already done it, that he has already made glorious the way of the sea, that the light has already fully come. And so when we talk about the light, the light is a sure thing. It is for sure. The second thing that we see in this verse is not only is it for sure, it is for all. Do you see what it says there at the end? The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And I was, Galilee of the nations can also be translated Galilee of the Gentiles. And I was studying this and trying to make sense of this, and the commentators say that that phrase, Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles, is not used anywhere else. Everywhere else, it's, it's just Galilee. It's not of the nations or of the Gentiles. And what the commentators suggested, and I agree with them, is it means two things. Number one, it means that when the light comes in the latter day, everything will be changed, even the old names. The old ways, everything will be changed, everything will be made new. But secondly, and this is really important for, the, for many of us this morning, this is Isaiah here, aware of it or not, is introducing the idea of the involvement of the Gentiles, the non-Jews, because this is a word originally in its first context given just to the Israelites, not to the Gentiles. But even here, there is a hint that it's for all, that it's for all the nations. It's, it's beyond the Jordan. It's the Galilee of the nations, that the light will shine not just on the Jewish people, of course, on the Jewish people, but also on the Gentiles and on the nations, because God's desire is to draw people from all the nations. And so the light is for sure. It is for all. And then the last thing we learn about the nature of the light, and this is probably the most important thing I want you to get this morning, is that it's not from us. It's for us. It's not from us, it's for us. Did you notice in verse 2, it, said, it doesn't say that, 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 that from the world a light has sprung. It says, upon the world a light has dawned. 
It has come from outside. And what Isaiah is saying is that the light is not in you. The light is outside of this world. And Tim Keller has a great little book on Christmas called Hidden Christmas. And in it, he quotes a New York Times article that says this. This is a New York Times trying to explain what Christmas means. And they say that the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph. And that we, humankind, we, will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. How's it going? (laughs) How's it working out? That we, humankind, and here's what the New York Times is saying. The light is in you. The light's here. We just got to kind of get around a campfire and sing kumbaya until we all like each other and get along. Here's what they're saying. We have the light within us, and we are the ones who can dispel dispel the darkness of the world. We can overcome poverty. We can overcome injustice, violence, and evil. And if we work together, we will create a world of unity and peace. Now, those are all things that we should work for as the people of God. We should all work to overcome poverty, injustice, violence, and evil. But ultimately, the greatest hope we need is not inside of us. The light is not here. It's not waiting to break out of us. Isaiah said, a light has dawned on you. It's come from outside. This is not the message of Christmas that you have the light and we can make this world better. The message of Christmas is you dwell in a land of deep darkness. But here's the good news. A light has dawned upon you. I don't know how many of you have had to, at some point in this last month, go into your basement or your attic and get your Christmas decorations out and get the lights out. And even if you, even if you, even if you put those lights away perfectly, even if you roll them up perfectly, just spend all your time making sure that some, something happens the rest of the year. Some little evil elf gets in there and manages to tangle your lights up. And so nobody actually ever pulls lights out that aren't, don't need some untangling. You get these lights in your hand, you're like, ah. And so you start untangling, and you untangle them, and then you, you hang them up, and then you plug them in. Sometimes we think, well, all the world needs is untangling. If we could just untangle some things, some issues of poverty and racism and injustice and and, and these sort of uh, systemic issues, if we could just untangle our world, then we'd be fine. But what if you untangle the lights, but you never, ever plug it in? It doesn't matter that you've untangled them. It's not going to bring light. And our problem is not that things are tangled up. Our problem is, is that we got no lights. We got no power. We can't plug ourselves into ourselves. The only hope that we have is that a light came for us. So the message of Christmas is not untangle the lights. The message of Christmas is you have no power, but a light dawned upon you. The message of Christmas is not we will will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. Actually, it's the exact opposite. The message of Christmas, and this, by the way, is just about the most offensive thing about the Christian message. More than Christians' morality, more than Christians' view on life, more than Christians' view on sexuality, more than any of that cannot save. Really get to the, the bottom of it. You cannot save yourself. And that's the message of Christmas. In fact, the belief that we can save ourselves through political systems or ideology, that we can fix human problems, the belief that we can save ourselves, or even our efforts to save ourselves, if we look at human history, it's actually led to more problems, hasn't it? It's actually led to more darkness. So our efforts, the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life, it does not say, cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. The Bible never tells us to be indifferent to the forces of darkness, but it also supports no illusions that we can, if we try hard enough, right? Fix it, Felix, Felix Jr. We can fix it. Nor does it agree with the pessimists who only see a dystopian future. The message of Christmas instead is this. Listen, hear this. really are this dark Nevertheless, there's hope. 
Here's what the message of Christmas is. The darkness is true, but it's not the final truth. The darkness is true, but it's not the whole truth. The darkness is true, but it's not the greater truth. The nature of the light.